This morning we're going to continue in our series in the book of John, the gospel according to John, chapter 17. We have Bibles at the end of the rows that you could use to follow along. would encourage you to open your Bibles there to follow along with us. John chapter 17, verses 6 through 11. Remind you to listen closely, for this is God's word. John 17, verses 6 through 11. There Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed them that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I've got your Bibles open to John 17, uh, and as you go there, I, I do have to tell you a story. A few weeks ago, I had an interesting visit. Uh, two Saturdays ago, I was busy actually working on my sermon for last week, uh, finishing it up, and, and that Saturday morning, I got a knock on the door, and uh, so I went downstairs and, and uh, opened the door, and there was a guy, and of course, he had the kind of... Um, leaflets you give when there's an election, right? And so he, he introduced himself, and he actually was one of the, the candidates for District 9 uh, that's in Mecklenburg County, the election that's coming up for that open seat. And I won't tell you his name, but uh, he introduced himself, and then he, he explained kind of his um, qualifications and, and um, his, his desire to actually be in the House of Representatives of the United States Congress for, for our district. And and I have to admit, I've never had this happen before, where an actual candidate's come to my door and talk to me. So, I mean, I've known other representatives and other contacts, never to my door like this. And so I thought, well, this is a great opportunity. So I said, okay, tell me what you're about. And he would tell, tell me some of his views on different things. And, and then I said, well, what makes you different than all the other candidates that we're going to have to vote on here in a few weeks? And he said, uh, he went through a few other things that made him different and unique and, and his experiences. And... Uh, and then, of course, he asked the question, the question that every candidate should ask, and it's right on to ask whenever they're engaging you, and that's, that question is this, would you please give me your vote in so many weeks? And uh, he asked, in other words, to be my, even our, representative here in the South Charlotte area, and uh, that's exactly what a good re- representative will do. He will be looking out for you and your needs, in a greater good even, uh, as he represents us. Whatever your political views, 
You and I want someone to speak for us in life when we don't feel like we can speak. The amazing thing is that when, while we have human representatives in government and other parts of life about God and our Christ, that he represents us before the God of the universe speaking for us in prayer. And today, we're going to take another look at the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in John 17 in the Gospels. And you have to remember that Jesus has just, uh, uh, just been praying already for himself and uh, for the glory of God, which we'll talk about shortly. But he also now takes a shift, and he starts praying for the disciples, the people who follow him in a very personal and real way. So today, we're going to look at how Jesus prayed back then and how he even prays for you right now as the living Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father in a very personal way. So that brings us to our questions. How and why does Jesus pray for his disciples as our divine representative before God? And what assurance does that leave us with now? How can we be assured about our lives even as Jesus prays for us? So you can see your outline in the back of your bulletin if you're not familiar with that on how Jesus prays for us before a holy God, how he commends his disciples before God, and prays with priority and assurance as well uh, before God. So let's dive in. We're, in the, we're just kind of getting started in this prayer, this amazing prayer. And uh, you've got to remember the context when Jesus prays. Uh, he is the first century. He's sitting probably in a room with his disciples or on a walk. We don't know exactly where he is at this point. But here's the big thing. Jesus has just told his disciples, I'm leaving. I'm going. I'm out of here. Now, he has spent several chapters as a result telling them how to keep following him after he leaves in his death, resurrection, and ascension. And he's called them to love He's called them to abide. He's called them to uh, also live in the Holy Spirit, among other things. And then verse 1 happens in our text. And let's go back and look at that real quick. Verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus breaks up into this spontaneous prayer out loud in front of the disciples. And did you notice he lifted his eyes to heaven, more than likely had his eyes open. Yes, you can pray with your eyes open if you want, everyone. Uh, and in this case, like last week, he starts out the prayer. Uh, like last week we said, he starts out the whole thing by talking about and praying for the glory of God. That's his focus. He goes on to say very plainly, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. The glory of God is on Jesus' mind as the first and foremost thing. And like we said last week, he, he's praying about the glory of God with the cross about to happen just hours after this whole thing uh, is prayed. So he prays about himself and the Father's glory is the first thing. But notice the second thing. In our text today, in this high priestly prayer, he prays for his disciples and prays for his disciples, including us here today as well. Look at that in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Those who call him Lord and Savior, his, his people. 
Well, we talked about this last week, but I want to highlight this. This is an important thing. Um, Jesus is serving as a priest, a mediator between us and God, a go-between between us and God, communicating between sinful people like we are in our very nature before God and between a holy God. Jesus is communicating in that way. Here's another way to say that. He is representing us like the best of politicians would do for their people in the halls of power in our time. Jesus is representing us before the Father in an extraordinary way. Now, what does his... Uh, where does this representation come from? I mean, why is it so important to Jesus praying for us? Why is it so important to us today? Well, going back to the Old Testament, for those of you who might be Bible scholars, Jesus' representation of is really no different than what happened back in the Old Testament covenant with God's people and with God. If you were to go to Leviticus 16 in particular, you'd find that once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, there would be this uh, priest, the high priest, who would go into the temple, and in particular, he'd go to this one place that was only, only visited once a year called the Holy of Holies, and he would go inside, and he would pray before God in his presence uh, at, and pray particularly for the people. More specifically, he would offer a sacrifice and represent the people before God. That's what he would do right there in the Holy of Holies. Now, you got to understand, going in the Holy of Holies was no small thing. The, the, the high priest, though a godly man, was still a sinner. And going into the presence of God is a risky thing in, in a holy world. We don't have easy access as broken people before a sinful God on our own. I mean, before a, a holy God on our own. In fact, what they would do is they put a, a rope around his leg, and they put little bells on him, so they could hear him, and in case he died in the presence of God, they could pull him out. That's what they would do back in the Old Testament with this one-day-a-year Yom Kippur. Now, what's that got to do with you and me today? And about what's that got to do with Jesus praying for us? Well, in verse 1, Jesus says this. He says, the hour has come. The hour has come. The predetermined hour in God's plan of history for Jesus to die on the cross is about to happen. Jesus would go on to represent us on the cross as a substitutionary atonement. That's the fancy word for he died for us. He died for us as a spotless lamb, sacrifice, so we might be forgiven for our sins once and for all. He was the ultimate high priest who offered himself before God there on that cross for you and for me. And here's the kind of beauty of that. The worst things we do in life that we feel guilt or shame for, the things we carry around in our heart and we think, there's no way I can be loved, Jesus knows all about that. And he died for that, too. That's how big the cross was for us. Jesus is praying for us as a representative with the cross in mind as our high priest. The cross is the Final and ultimate day of atonement, Yom Kippur. It is the final and ultimate feast. So what? What's that got to do with daily life as well? Well, if you aren't a follower of Jesus, or you're kind of kicking the tires, I don't know what to think of this Jesus thing. Let me tell you, you cannot go before a holy God on your own. 
There's no easy access to a perfect God who can't be around unrighteousness and uncleanness. You cannot go into the holy of holies with God. In other words, heaven itself. Uh, because our normal state is we are in the places of power with God without a representative. We need a representative, and Jesus came to be our representative there at the cross before God. So what you need to do if you don't follow Jesus is consider this. Jesus is calling you to trust him as your representative before God, to actually embrace him as the one who will actually pray for you before God. And let me tell you what happens when Jesus is praying for you. God the Father always says yes. When Jesus prays for you, God the Father always says yes. What's this got to do with if you're a follower of Jesus? If you're a follower of Jesus, you and I have to remember that he is praying for us right now. Just as he was praying for his disciples back then, right before the cross in that room, with all they were about to go through, he's praying for us as well. Now, Scripture tells us that he prays for things for us. We know he's praying for the Holy Spirit to come to us. That's a running theme throughout the chapters we've just been through in Jesus' farewell discourse. This whole thing where he prays, tells the disciples about how he's going to send the Holy Spirit. So what does that look like in life? Well, Jesus prays for the Holy Spirit to come to us in order that we uh, might have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, as Romans 5 says. He prays for the Holy Spirit to bring holiness, using the word of God, the truth, to make us different people. He prays for us to be equipped for ministry. So if you ever feel inept or like you're not really doing much for the kingdom, Jesus wants to pray the Holy Spirit will come in you so that you can serve in his kingdom. Not just here at church, but even out there in your jobs in more effective ways with the unique gifts and abilities God has given you in your life. There's one more thing I think he's praying for us as Christians. And this is something that every one of us here, I think, really longs for. Even Elizabeth and I have been praying for this on and off the last few years a lot. And it's this. Renewal. Can I use the old word? Revival. Where the Holy Spirit blows in our hearts and makes us new again, even as Christians. A renewed sense of his greatness, a renewed sense of what happened at the cross, a renewed sense of who he is and what he offers. Jesus is praying these things for you and for me. How do I know this? Well, there's a verse in Hebrews 4 that says this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And listen to the call to action. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus gets you and me in our struggles, in the hardest things we're dealing with, in the temptations. And in Jesus' case, he never fell to the temptation. The things that you're like, I feel so weak, I'm just drawn to it. Jesus held out. 
Jesus was courageous to the end, and he's praying for you to hold out with him in your relationship with him. So much so that Hebrews 7 says this. This is great. It says this. It says, he lives to make intercession for us as his people. He's like wanting to pray for us. He's hungry to pray for us. And the implication is this. He and in us as a people in his church, he prays going to bat for us with the Father, and he's going to bat for you before the very God of the universe in very specific ways. I mean, think about that for a second. How would you feel if somebody like uh, someone on, president, uh, on the President of the United States cabinet came to him and said, I know you by your name. I know this guy, and it's you. And you've got to know this person. And they have needs, and I want us to take care of them for you. How would you feel if somebody was going to bat for you with the President of the United States, just the office itself? That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Like, yep, they mentioned my name with the President. What if the God of the universe is hearing your name regularly with Jesus speaking it? That's what's going on in this text. Jesus is actively praying for us but he also prays in specific ways. Look at verse uh, 6, in verse 6 through 8. Look at what that says here. I already read it, but it says, Jesus starts to pray real specifically. I have manifested your name to the people whom you've given me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Jesus moves from praying from the glory of God to praying for us. And he, he's already prayed, I've glorified you. Now he says, I've manifest you, Lord, to these people, the disciples in his time, uh, Matthew, Bar, uh, uh, Matthew, Luke, no, not even Luke, Matthew, Peter, James, and John, here is that Jesus has revealed who God actually is to these people. Let me put it another way. You see Jesus, you see God in the flesh. That's what he's praying about here. But then he moves on in the prayer. He reveals more and gives two attitudes on revealing why he's praying for the disciples. And the why is in this repetition. Did you see it? You, Father, gave them to me. And he said it several times. Do you realize what he's saying? If you're a follower of Christ and you trust him by faith, God the Father has given you and entrusted you to Jesus. If you have found Christ, or rather Christ has found you, Jesus considers you a gift. He considers you a gift. You know one of the challenges early on in my marriage, I think I've told this before, but I'll say it again, is I have a gifted wife. People, sees people. She's the artist. She can see things. She is intuitive and picks up things of people. And for early years... Uh, of our marriage, I didn't know what to do with that. In fact, sometimes I just kind of like, you're skeptical, I don't know what's wrong with you. And I'd say things like, uh, dumb things like, will you stop looking at me, you know, seeing me and my junk? <laughs> and then after a while, I realized after years of marriage, you know, how many times has she seen it and it's actually helped us and it's helped even me? And I began to see instead of her gifts being a curse to me, they were actually a gift in them of themselves, that she was a gift. Well, that's the thing you got to understand. Jesus doesn't see you as a problem. 
He doesn't see you as a difficult issue that he's always got to deal with. He sees you as a gift given by the Father. That's, the, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Let me ask you a question. And this is a, a sonship question. You've often heard, you know, uh, the, the kind of, there's some old questions like, if you were dying tonight and go to heaven, what would God say to you? Why should you come into my heaven? But let me ask another question of you. What does God think of you right now? What does he think of you right now? What pops in your head? Some of us, it might be a blank. I don't know. Some of us, it might be, oh boy, he's not happy about me. Some of us, it's like God is the great teacher in the sky with a red pen just waiting for me to fail. But what Jesus is saying here is, as a gift to one another. Jesus prays like this for you and for me. Thank you, Father, you gave me them. Not only does he pray that, like we were a gift, though, he prays with commendation. In verses 6 through 8, he goes on to say the disciples kept his word, knew everything he said was from God, They've come to know the truth, that is, Christ the truth and the gospel even personally. They received Jesus and his word by faith. They banked their lives on him. And he commends that. Now, you and I go, wait a minute. Are we talking about the same disciples? (laughs) Aren't these the guys who are the regular screw-ups? The regular goofballs who are bumbling, dense, impulsive disciples. These are the guys who get in a regular argument about who's going to be in power at Jesus' right hand. And Jesus is commending them for taking in his word and owning it. Say, what? (laughs) I want us to keep a few things in mind in this. Jesus is talking about how they believe the gospel And they entrusted themselves to him as the Messiah, the Lord and Savior. They have not obeyed perfectly, as we don't. But he commends their faith and embrace of him. Just just within hours, they're going to blow it royally. (laughs) Is the Christian faith messy? Yes. But with Christ's blood and righteousness covering their sin, as their representative, Jesus prays for them and commends them to us, to the Father. He commends us to the Father. This gives us hope. When we sin, where we have a season of life where we aren't doing well, and everybody in this room, including me, has gone through that, even with Jesus and especially with Jesus, we can start to think, God's not interested in me, He doesn't want to have anything to do with me. Why? I wouldn't have anything to do with me the way I've been acting. But pay attention. The opposite is true here. The opposite is true. Right before Jesus knows they're going to deny him, knows they're going to abandon him, he's praying for them. He's commending their faith with approval, and he'll go on to say, keep them in that faith, as we'll look at shortly. Let me say it this way. God is infinitely more committed to you than you ever will be to him. 
infinitely more. That's how we're saved, by his commitment to us long before our commitment to him. And let me put it another way. He moves towards us in prayer long before we're praying to him. In the year 2000, the Olympic Games took place in Sydney, Australia. An unlikely hero came up through the ranks uh, as among the swimmers of, that, uh, of those games. His name was Eric the Swimmer Musabani. Musabani was from Equatorial Guinea. This 22-year-old started swimming six months before the Olympics. He'd only been swimming in a 20-meter pool when the Olympics are 50-meter pools. And he had never been swimming with, in competition with the best in the world. He got in by virtue of a special dispensation of third world countries that they wanted to include more third world countries in all kinds of sports. And so, sure enough, he made it to the very first heat. And right off the bat, two of the swimmers he was, he was swimming against uh, scratched because they were disqualified in false starts. So Eric, the swimmer Musabani, swam alone. He swam alone in this pool before a huge crowd at the Olympics. As the Associated Press said and described his swimming style, he swam in a charmingly inept way. <laughs> he never put his head under the surface. He flailed, gasping for air. With 10 meters left in the race, he stopped with people watching to see if he would actually drown, ready to jump in. And then it happened. The crowd got to their feet. The crowd got louder, cheering for him. They went crazy for him. And slowly he made his way, painfully slowly, to the finish line, to the wall, to finish the race. When asked what it was like to swim in the Olympics, Eric the swimmer, Musabani from Equatorial Guinea, said this, I want to send hugs and kisses to the crowd. It was their cheers that kept me going. You want to know what keeps you going? I'm just going to put it plain in Christian terms, all right? Very complicated. The it's Jesus Christ praying for you and empowering you to keep going. Jesus cheers for you with your inept flailing as you follow him. He's praying with commendation for you. He's not saying, there they go again, Father. God, how much longer do we have to deal with these people? No. The gospel is Jesus is way more committed to you than you'll ever be to him. And what do you know? We have an illustration of this. His name is Peter. Do you remember what happens the same night? Jesus says to Peter, right before he goes to the cross, Peter, and this is after Peter said, I will never deny you all these losers may, but not me. He says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you. But what makes Peter different than Judas Iscariot, the traitor? It's the next thing Jesus says. 
but I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. There is a Christ who is commending you before the Father. And if you even, let me just say this, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to love Jesus, if you want to please him, if you want to give your life in meaningful ways to him, you know what Jesus is doing? He's not saying, well, show me the goods. He's going, yes! That's a huge step forward already. (laughs) Glory to you, Father. Look at what the Spirit is doing as we work on this person's heart. Jesus is praying as our representative before God. He is commending us before the Lord. But another, he has one last reason I want to look at in our text today in verse 9. Look at that. It says this, Jesus is saying, uh, I am praying for them and I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me For they are yours, all mine are yours, yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Notice the strong distinction Jesus makes in this text between I'm praying for them, my my disciples, my people, I'm not praying for the rest of the world. Does that mean Jesus doesn't care for the world? Of course he cares for the world. Of course he's interested and he loves the world. God so loved the world. But Jesus is saying here, look, I'm going to focus on praying for these at this time. These are my people. He gives the most of his prayer time for us, if you will, as his people. And why is that? Well, for the disciples then, when Jesus wouldn't be around, they wouldn't have him to protect them anymore. I mean, think about that. The disciples then, they were walking around with Jesus. And when the heat came, Jesus took the heat for them. But now, with Jesus not present, but present in the Spirit... They were going to have to take the heat for following him. That's what Jesus tells us many times. We're going to get the heat whenever we follow him. And sometimes it can be intense. But this gets to the why in verse 11, why Jesus prays a particular prayer for the disciples. He prays to the Father, keep them in your name. This is a prayer of assurance that Jesus is actively praying that the Father will keep us within the fold with him. Think of it this way. The Father, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit started our salvation. He'll end our salvation, and he'll sustain us throughout. Uh, He who began a good work in you, Philippians 1, will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. But that breaks the question, what if you blow it with God and really bad? What if we don't get it right and don't perform well for the Lord, flailing, even drowning in the water before him? Is it possible for anyone who's been forgiven to end up being condemned again? Well, this prayer is for those who think that they might have blown it with God and he's condemning you even now. It's a prayer that should give us hope. Why? Because he's praying for people like his disciples who are about to abandon him, who are about to leave him. Let me put it another way. Jesus expects more failure from us than we do ourselves. And he keeps praying for us. Remembers Romans 8. This is what it says. Who is that that condemns the believer? Well, the judge is Christ Jesus who died, uh, who is condemned once and for all for us on the cross. 
as our high priest. It is Christ Jesus who is raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of God. The Jesus who knows you personally by name and represents you personally to the Father, that Jesus is speaking for you. And get this, Romans 8 says, it is Jesus who is interceding for you in prayer. The implication being no one can pull you away from God because God pulled you to himself. That gives us the final why that's embedded in our text here in verse 9 and 10. Why is Jesus praying for us so much? Why is he so invested in this prayer? Well, the amazing thing shows up in verse 9 when he says this. He says this, all his disciples are yours, that is the Father's. Then again, all the disciples, his people are mine, and yours are mine. Here's what he's saying. Jesus and the Father not only care for us, they have a sense of ownership for us. Ownership. Now, some of you think, wait a minute, ownership? Is this like in a slavery sense? No, Jesus doesn't see you as a slave. He sees you as family. Yours and mine language is family language. He sees you as a child of God. Jesus says basically to you and to me and to the Father, I belong to you. You belong to me. I belong to you. You belong to me. In a lonely world, where you really truly can be lonely in a crowd on the internet, anywhere you go, Jesus says, I belong to you. You belong to me. He says that with the Father, between the, in the relationship with the Father, with the Spirit. And now he's saying, now, uh, we belong to him. And that's what Jesus is praying, is this sense of belonging that comes in family. Jesus is going to bat for you because he sees you as family. Jesus prays for you because he sees you as family. And you know this intuitively. If something happens in your family that's really hard to a family member, what's your impulse? You go to praying for them a lot, right? Health issues, wandering kids, we can name it. You just start praying more than ever. Well, how much more does Christ pray for you because you're family? I belong to you. You belong to me. You're my child. I represent you. I love you. Listen to the Christ who says you actually belong because of him. Let's pray.